1: I'm so pleased to have our next guest, someone who I've been speaking with for years, uh, but who now has a beard, so is completely different. Matt Tucker, head of iShares, uh, America's fixed income strategy at BlackRock, the first portfolio manager for a fixed income ETF. How much the world has changed since then, right?
2: Quite a bit. Good morning, Lisa. Yeah, you know, the joke I make is that I was the first PM on the first fixed income ETF, but at the time, nobody cared. Right, no one knew what it was. We care now, though, Matt. No Come on. Yeah.
1: Well, no, but one thing I want to ask you about, especially as the total uh, AUM assets under management and fixed income ETF swells to eight hundred billion dollars, where do we go from here? Are we sort of past peak growth for this mm-hmm. industry, given the fact that rates are rising, or do you see this uh, total significantly increasing over the next few years?
2: You know, I, for me, I think the joke is that we're still in the early innings, right? If you look at the market, so global fixed income ETFs, as you said, it's over eight hundred billion. The fixed income market is over a hundred trillion dollars. So less than 1% of all the bonds and kind of bond exposures in the world are in ETFs.
1: Yeah, but so many of them aren't even that liquid. So how much is sort of ETFable?
2: I think a lot more.
1: Um, So give us some projections.
2: (laughs) Uh, So I I think in the next five years you could see this will easily cross a trillion and probably approach two trillion globally for fixed income ETFs. I mean, we're still growing at pretty healthy 15 to 20 percent a year growth rates. Um, things like, so I think you have to look at a couple different trends. So one is you're just seeing more adoption of ETFs as a way to invest in fixed income markets, right? They do a lot of things that you can do. The only thing you can do with an ETF you can't do with a mutual fund or a bond, right? But at the same time, you do have kind of these shorter term periods where you have like rising rates that might cause some pullback in fixed income, but that doesn't diminish the overall trend, right? I mean, go back to 2013, the Fed went, had the taper tantrum, rates went up. People pulled money out of fixed income ETFs money came out, but they went back in in 14, 15, 16, 17. So you're gonna have these short term pullbacks, but long term, I mean, the trend is still, I think you're gonna still see adoption because there's still so many investors discovering bond ETFs.
1: So where's the biggest opportunity? Where's the biggest growth gonna come
2: from? So I think the biggest growth is this move towards model portfolios that's happening in the wealth space, right? So so many oh, wealth managers- Oh, you mean, managers,
1: you mean a smart, smart beta?
2: Well, not even smart beta. So if, to put that aside, I'll, I'll, I think that is a growth area, but if you put that aside and just uh-huh. say kind of bread and butter, how investors invest today, is changing. So it used to be that a portfolio manager, say called a a financial advisor, would go buy a couple active funds and say, okay, that's my bond allocation. Now they're saying, you know what? I can use ETFs to actually build my own exposure at the client level. So every individual investor can have a customized fixed income portfolio. That trend is still growing. I think there'll be a ton more adoption of bond ETFs around that trend.
1: All right. So uh, certainly there has been a lot of growth in government bonds. Certainly there's been uh, quite a bit of uh, growth in corporate bonds. But when it comes to the riskier debt, high yield bond ETFs, for example, the assets have kind of stagnated, it seems like recently. There's been sort of a a leveling off. And even as volumes increase and institutions use it more, it kind of seems to have reached a saturation point. Do you think that that's the case? Do you think that they're sort of done growing?
2: I'm not sure they're done growing forever. I think at this part of the cycle, though, if you kind of look at who's using them right now, you have a lot of institutions, as you mentioned, using high-level ETFs. The liquidity is very strong. Um, There's kind of enough float out there to kind of support the liquidity that's out there. I think if you had a period where investors started to allocate more to high yield as an asset class, you'd see it grow. But honestly, where spreads are right now and we are in the cycle, you're just not seeing a lot of investor demand and appetite for high yield. Um, Different part of the cycle that changes. I think they grow. But I think at this point, it's hard to imagine it would grow, right? Just like you're not seeing growth in high yield mutual funds or other high yield vehicles.
1: So, Matt, what do you think of Bitcoin ETFs? (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> we don't have any yet. Um, I mean, Bitcoin's got a whole other problem in that no one's quite sure if it's a security or not, right? And so it kind of until no you define it if it's a security, it's hard to actually put it into something else, which is a security. So I think the regulators have a lot of work to do to kind of figure that out and figure out how to legally treat Bitcoin. But once you actually have it established and the rules are established, sure, I could see it making its way into an ETF as long as it was eligible.
1: Well, just talking about that, I'm wondering with some of the derivatives that have been used in ETFs, I'm thinking of an ETF uh, complex that has credit default swaps as the backing. It's just sort of a derivative of a derivative. Does that start Mm -hmm. to get you nervous? Or, you know, with the right parameters and the right holdings, it's fine?
2: I think as long as you structure and manage the risks appropriately, it can be fine, right? So as you can imagine, I think think there are actually in the market credit default swap, you know, backed ETFs. But as long as those are fully collateralized, there's not a lot of leverage, I think it can work. I think if you start getting into layers of leverage, I think that's the lesson of 10 years ago, right? That's when you start to create these structures that can unwind quickly in a crisis. Fully collateralized, fully backed. Whether you hold a bond or a derivative, it shouldn't matter much, actually.
1: Are there bad actors in the ETF world that are doing things that you think are imprudent?
2: <laughs> That's always a tough question. Um,
1: I like to I like to make your life difficult, I,
2: I think there are more and more actors in this space, right? So, so I sit in a seat to your point where I've been doing this for more than sixteen years now, right? So. I, I take kind of a long lens on this where I think there are very good providers who put out very good products where they understand the risks and how to list like them Black and how to reach Like BlackRock, for risk. example, Like right? BlackRock, for example. Not to make this a commercial, but yeah, so I feel like <laughs> we, we've been doing this so long we understand this and understand how to do it. As you get so new players the in the market, I, you can't name names, but, but I think you could. firms that don't really understand the underlying, don't understand how to create funds, I, I think there's risk like any industry, right? You get more players in.
1: But But what kind of reputational risk is there to you and to your firm given the fact that there are more players, some with less perhaps prudent standards.
2: Um, It's something that we definitely think about and talk about, right? This this idea that if there was a bad actor who made some big mistake, there could be some taint to the ETF industry. That's kind of a tail risk that every industry has, right? But I I think that the forces pushing the growth of ETFs are strong enough that the industry would weather any such event. I'm not really concerned about as a long-term risk, but as a short-term pullback or cause for concern or an area where you might have to educate more. Yeah, I mean, there could be something. I, if you look at levered and Inverse Funds, classic example, right? They've gone through some periods where they've had a lot of scrutiny from regulators, from investors. And when that's happened, we've gone out and done a lot of education to help people understand, like, these are what these securities are. This is how they operate. These are the risks you should worry about. And as long as we keep doing that and educating the market, I think we're fine.
1: Matt Tucker, so good to see you. Great to see you, I Lisa. like the beard. It Thank works you. on you. Matt Tucker is the mm-hmm. head of iShares Americas for Fixed Income Strategy at BlackRock. He was the first portfolio manager for a fixed income ETF. He said people didn't really care back then, uh, nearly two decades ago, but people certainly care today when there is $800 billion in fixed income ETFs. And definitely this is an increasing area where people are seeing both liquidity and an ability to invest in debt at relatively low fees. I'll focus today on marijuana, in particular Tilray, the Canadian cannabis company that has surged 400% in just months and is now more valuable than American Air, Clorox, and CBS. So who's hearing ka-ching? Perhaps it's Sam Masucci. He joins us now. He's founder and chief executive officer of ETF Managers Group in Summit, New Jersey. Sam, thank you so much for being with us. You have an exchange-traded fund that invests in marijuana companies. How has it benefited from the recent popularity of all things marijuana?
3: Well, the fund, which was launched, by the way, at uh, the end of December last year with $7 million, is now over $600 million in assets. Uh, we added $30 million, uh, in, uh, you know, since August 13th. Um, it had a record high yesterday, and we're up 60% to mid-August. So all of this positive news, whether it's related to uh, Tilray, uh, the recent Canopy growth, Uh, transaction, um, you know, growing global acceptance of marijuana is really helping the fund and investors in the fund.
1: How concerned are you about deploying that cash? Because there's sort of a limited number of candidates here to receive it, certainly in the public market, yeah?
3: There are. I mean, currently the fund has 34 holdings across the globe. Um, The number of opportunities and target companies, I think, will continue to grow As again, there's more regulatory certainty around the space and more companies uh, uh, start to enter. So I I think the universe of stocks is just going to keep growing.
1: I mean, how do you define a marijuana stock when a company like Coca-Cola is thinking about creating a drink that uses one of the ingredients in cannabis uh, to provide certain benefits or effects, and when the big tobacco companies are behind the scenes trying to lobby for legalization and create their own networks?
3: So what we do is we, um, and by the way, this is an index-based fund. The index is produced by Prime Indexes, and we manage the portfolio to match the index. But the index is actually split up between pure marijuana plays, as well as companies that are becoming very involved, but it's not their core business. I think Scott's miracle Grow, which is one of our holdings, is, is a good example of that. Philip Morris is another. So it is unique in that it is a pure play. It does offer access to companies that are not Um, only in the the cannabis space, as I said, in like a Scotts or a, 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 you know, some of these other funds, Philip Morris, but it does offer this kind of access that benefits from the growth in the space, investor demand, and certainty around regulations.
1: So, Sam, you were the first cannabis ETF in the U.S. Are you seeing a lot of other ETF providers follow on and try to get in the game as well recently?
3: Um, I'm not. I mean, we're the only pure play in the US. Um, There is a pure play in Canada. Um, We have the benefit of having first mover advantage as 71% of all of our funds are first mover. Um, And so this is a very uh, first mover driven business, ETFs, thematic ETFs in particular. So it's not to say that others might not get involved, but... You know, we have that space.
1: How concerned are you that this is just a passing fad, that this sort of is a rolling ball of money that will roll out of the cannabis space as we get more certainty around regulations and get a clearer sense of the winners and losers here?
3: Um, I don't think it is. I think it is an industry and really within its infancy. And again, around the globe, people are learning more about the medicinal properties. Uh, it's being used for things like the treatment of children's epileptic seizures, Crohn's disease, it's weaning people off of opioids. So certainly the medicinal side of it will continue to grow as we better understand the science and the benefits.
1: One thing I don't understand, though, is that's not where the real growth opportunity comes from, right? I mean, the real growth here could be from recreational use, where it puts the cannabis industry on par with the alcohol industry or the uh, tobacco industry, correct? (laughs)
3: Well, I th- well, I, I don't know that I agree with that. I think there's, there there is two-prong growth, which is a benefit to investing in this space. Sure, there is a the recreational side. There's less acceptance of recreational, certainly within the U.S. and globally, than medicinal. But there are very large companies doing some tremendous work in the medicinal space, all benefiting from marijuana, particularly the CBD components of the cannabis plant. So no, you're, I think you're going to see a lot of growth both in both sections, which benefits the fund, either way.
1: Sam, who are the investors that you're seeing put money into your fund, for the most part? I mean, institutions, individuals?
3: All of the above. I mean, we literally have hundreds of thousands of investors in the fund. The ticker, by the way, is MJ. Um, It's a stock that's at, you know, today it's a a $44.30 stock. So I think what it's benefiting from is a lot of people wanted to invest in this space, but they wanted to get away from single stock risk. When you buy a portfolio of 34, 36 stocks, it's giving you access to the theme, but they're not having to do the research to pick the right horse. This is a a fund that does that for you.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. Really uh, a good time for for MJ, for your fund, uh, and a really compelling time as we watch the shift from illegal to select legality and and potentially beyond. Sam Masucci, founder and chief executive officer of ETF Managers Group in Summit, New Jersey. MJ invests in a range of cannabis-focused companies, uh, and it's just interesting to see just how much these stocks have absolutely skyrocketed uh, this year. MJ up nearly 37% year-to-date. Tilray, of course, uh, is rocketing past some of the 100-year-old companies that are mainstays in the broader U.S. equity indices. We have the chief executive officer of AutoNation who started as a mechanic at a mercedes-benz dealership and has risen through the ranks steadily to become the ceo and he joins us here in our 1130 studios as well of course as craig Trudell, u.s autos team leader based in new york here for us at bloomberg news mike thank you so much for being with us mike jackson uh executive chairman of AutoNation, the announcement today that you are going to retire as ceo and help find the next leader Was this decision hard for you to do?
0: No, I've been thinking about it for uh, some years. Uh, The company's in a great position, so there's a a good window uh, for a transition. And uh, next year, I'll be 70 years old and will have been CEO then for 20 years. So we're sort of like breaking the rule of 90. Uh, And and so I think it's uh, uh, the right moment to uh, kick off Uh, a transition to an exciting new CEO and um, the board's taking uh, responsibility for the recruitment and selection of the next CEO. I'm sure it'll be an outstanding, exciting, vibrant uh, leader to join AutoNation and my contract has been extended uh, through 2021 as executive chairman. So I'm excited myself to start an exciting new chapter with the company.
1: So, Mike, before we get into all of the succession planning, I'm just wondering, going forward, you know, is the used car sales business going forward going to look very different from the one that you grew up in?
0: Well, there's no question. It's uh, very different, and we've had a part in changing it. We've branded the company AutoNation, coast to coast, and we've moved to one price in all our pre-owned operations across uh, the company and our customers absolutely love it it's how they want to buy cars it's and and our associates love uh, eliminating all the negotiation and haggle and be able to do it much quicker so if i look at our second quarter for pre-owned uh we're in that wonderful quadrant where we have higher volumes at higher gross margins
4: yeah craig come on in here yeah, and, and it's hard to talk about uh, all the change on the used car side without talking as well about all of the, the changes on on the sorry on the used car side without ch- changes on the new side. Uh, and maybe the, the biggest story in that respect uh, for some years now uh, has been Tesla for a lot of people and this idea that can the, the automaker uh, sort of circumvent the franchise model that we've uh, come to know in the U.S.? How is that going for Tesla at this point? In your view?
0: Well, how how is it going for Tesla? Period. I mean, I have to. You have to tip your hat. Uh, the product is is good uh, for uh, a luxury all electric vehicle, and they were there first, and they've built a brand that almost has a cult following. Uh, they've never been able to mon- make money doing that, and their capital structure is absolutely scary. Uh, So the sustainability and viability is very much open to question. Now, as far as their distribution model, it's not what I would have chosen, but this is America. I believe in free enterprise. If that's how they want to do it, uh, fine. I would observe that the rest of us have electric vehicles coming in big numbers over the next several years. Um, Audi just launched its e-tron yesterday in San Francisco. It's absolutely sensational. So these are very compelling electric vehicles. And for the first time, on top of everything else, Tesla is going to have real competition.
4: and, And Elon Musk said that he was in production hell last year. He recently said he's in deliveries hell. Is that a hell that could have been avoided had he not sort of snubbed yeah. his nose at the, the franchise dealer well, model?
0: Greg, I said this years ago. I said, if for a boutique model, what he's doing is fine. As soon as he wants to do volume, yeah. it's going to be an issue. <laughs> well, here we are. We're now at the issue. It is hell. And, um, you know, all you have to do is see these Model 3s sitting all over California. And, um Yeah.
1: So, Mike, I do want to get your, your thoughts. The Auto Nation shares are down quite a bit this year, but down about 15%. There's been a lot of concern raised about how we've reached uh, peak autos, and we've turned the corner, and we're starting to see some wobbly sales. What's your view there, and do you think that it's going to be a rocky road forward for the uh, entire auto industry? Well, I was
0: uh, always very frank that, uh, I think I said it coming out of the auto show in 2016, something like that, that... Um, uh, auto new vehicle sales are not going to climb forever uh, and that they're going to level off somewhere in the high 16 million units. And that's exactly what's happened. Uh, There's been a very major shift, though, towards trucks, which I think is permanent. In the month of August, 70% of the mix was uh, as vehicles defined as trucks. Really? You think it's permanent?
1: I think it's permanent. Even with the concerns about at some point, we're going to talk about gas consumption again?
0: No, we're not. Because <laughs> all right then, <laughs> let me tell you why it's permanent. Uh, so first, it's what the consumer wants. They love the high seating position. They they love the utility and they love the panache that comes with the design. Step two, the fuel economy of these vehicles compared to to ten years ago has doubled. We have small SUVs that are as more fuel efficient than a sedan. It's absolutely amazing. We have pickup trucks that get thirty miles to a gallon on the highway. So. And then you combine it to the fact that uh, gasoline prices are very reasonable, adjusted for inflation, just under $3 a gallon. And America is producing its own petroleum again. We're up to 10 million barrels a day with fracking, and it's sustainable. So what's going to happen to get the American consumer out of this truck? It would take $5, 6 7 a gallon gasoline to, to, to push them back into sedans. I don't see it happening. So that means um, uh, overall yeah um, uh, it's leveled off but at a very nice
1: place. All right Craig just real quick here I'd love to get your perspective do you ever see a world Do people who you talk to see a world in which the ride-sharing industry overtakes the car ownership industry is that going to upset the model here?
4: I think it's really hard to see that in most of America and I, I think one of the things that Mike I've, I've heard Mike talk about is is that being really uh, a model that is applicable and, and useful in the cities but so much of America so much so much of the American car buyers are the folks in rural areas where lyft and uber and and the like just have not scaled and are going to have some real trouble uh, scaling in any meaningful way and we've seen these companies make a lot of noise in cities and and maybe pick off some buyers on the margin here and there uh, but uh, you know we're we're quite a few years into these companies being around, yeah. and we're still selling you know sixteen seven million. Yeah, a look
0: year. at who they're re, who they're disrupting: taxis, yeah, buses, subways, uh, rental cars. So so the shared market is being disrupted by a shared business. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it really hasn't touched the personal use market.
1: Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for being here. Congratulations on an amazing tenure, uh, rising from being a mechanic to the CEO. Mike Jackson, executive chairman of AutoNation, also chair at the Atlanta Fed. Uh, he joins us here in 1130 Studios. Also, our thanks to Craig Trudell, U.S. Auto's team leader for Bloomberg News in New York. I want to talk about housing. There's been a lot of questioning about how strong the U.S. housing market really is. And underlying that angst really is the affordability question. Can Americans afford to own homes? Can they afford the American dream? And joining us now to talk about that is Danielle Hale, Chief Economist for Realtor.com. Danielle, thank you so much for being here. Definitely some conflicting data. This morning we saw that U.S. housing starts rose more than forecasts, but permits slumped, suggesting perhaps a little bit of a struggle there. I'm wondering how much of this story is the ability for people to actually buy homes right now?
5: Yeah, I think that's a great point, Lisa. So housing starts were up, but if you dig down and look at the data, single-family starts eked out just a really minor gain. Most of the gain came from a huge jump in multifamily starts. And when we think about the owner-occupied housing market, it's single-family starts that lead to homes that people can buy. Most of the multifamily construction that is built is built for rent. Um, So this really isn't helping people who are in the market to buy a home. It's probably good news for renters, they might see some relief in rent increases on the horizon, but not so much on the, on the homeownership side.
1: So can you talk a little bit about uh, affordability? Because a new story, study that you guys put out showed that only 41% of the U.S. can actually afford to own a home. How does that compare to the past? Yeah, so what we were
5: looking at in that um, study is the median income family. So the median income family in counties where 41% of the nation's population lives can't afford to buy the median home listing price. Um, And so things are less affordable now than they have been for most of the last seven or eight years. Um, But we're sort of back in line with what a longer-term picture of affordability is. So in the last seven or eight years, mortgage rates have been incredibly low. After the housing crisis, prices were low and have since recovered. Um, And so that created a huge opportunity for people to get into the housing market. Um, And we're starting to see that that window is closing, at least as far as, you know, great opportunities. That doesn't mean there aren't opportunities, things are just less affordable now than they have been in the recent past.
1: I'm wondering what this does with respect to the dynamic in the rental market. We've seen a lot of money being raised for funds managed by the likes of Oxif or Blackstone to buy up rental properties. How much does this sort of create a puzzle or present possibly a challenge to the costs that people end up paying if people are forced into renting more than owning? In other words, can you just give a sense of of what the benefits are on both sides here? Yeah. So
5: if you're renting, you have flexibility. Um, in the sense that if you need to move, you can do so relatively easily. You're not responsible for any of the property maintenance and you don't take any of the risks of anything breaking that falls on your landlord. So it's great for younger households. And in fact, we see younger households are much more likely to rent than to own. But for older households that are more established, maybe you have kids in the picture, um, it's nice to have that stability. Um, So you don't get the flexibility, but you you get the benefit of stability. You get to be in the same place. You get to call the shots and make decisions. So you're not facing the question of what is going to happen to my rent every year. You get to pay a fixed uh, monthly payment if you've taken out a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, which is by far the most common type of mortgage. Um, So there are a lot of benefits. And when you're a homeowner, you're paying down your mortgage every month. And so you're building up equity through that forced savings plan of making payments on your mortgage. So it's a great way for homeowners to accumulate wealth. And in fact, if you look at the data, homeowners tend to have 30 to 40 times Greater net worth than renters. A large part of that is because of the value they've built up in their home.
1: What do you think of the theory that's been postulated that when the baby boomers get old, retire, downsize their homes, there's going to be a flood of uh, houses that are put up for market, and valuations are going to crash? Have you heard this theory?
5: I have heard this theory um, quite a bit. (laughs) I think that you know the baby boomers own a lot of real estate right now, and and they're such a huge generation that they have big impacts on uh, the macro economy. I think that um, you know, baby boomers are living longer. They're healthier than previous generations, so they're staying in their homes longer. I don't think we're going to see a sudden exodus out of their homes um, because I, I don't think they're moving to assisted living type facilities as much as previous generations, and they're certainly not moving as early to those Uh, types of facilities. So I think they're going to stay in their homes for a little longer. And I think that's going to be good because it's going to spread out that wave. So it's not going to be like a huge surge. I think it will be a gradual increase and that'll help the market better adjust and absorb it. And especially as millennials age into those years where they're forming households, having kids, I think that will help absorb some of those homes that are out in the suburbs.
1: Danielle, uh, just 20 seconds here. Where do you think we are in the housing cycle right now?
5: I think prices are high. I think sales are struggling because affordability is challenging. Um, but for households who are looking again, and I, I still think there's opportunity in the housing market.
1: Thank you so much for being with us, Danielle Hale, chief economist for realtor.com. And definitely uh, quite a staggering number that only 41% of the US can actually afford to own a home, but great perspective there, that this is not uncommon historically, that this sort of is uh, the historic average in terms of what people could afford. Definitely also telling though, as a number of big institutional firms plow into the rental ownership business, trying to capitalize on this trend.